Welcome to the audio podcast, the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online and our recently renovated sanctuary. Sunday morning service is in person at 11 a.m. and we are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. I'm going to pray just briefly before I begin. Dear God, I intend to speak of things that are far, far above me. I pray that you would move in spite of and beyond my limitations to say something real and true and beautiful this morning. Amen. Christmas begins with a dream, a dream that was passed down for generations, from parents to children, to shepherds and prophets, to priests and prostitutes, a dream carried through Egypt, through the Sinai Desert, through Canaan and Palestine and Babylon. It was carefully etched on scrolls and bellowed from rooftops, it was smuggled on pack animals and whispered in illegal prayers. It was the dream of a small, peripheral, and besieged people. It was the dream of Emmanuel, which means God with us, a vision that held within itself the desire for belonging, for home, for justice, for the presence and grace and love of God all intertwined. The hope of Christmas wasn't a choice between political and spiritual hopes, between throwing off the Roman occupation and the pouring out of the Spirit. It was a commitment to the revolutionizing of the world as it was known, holistically, body and spirit, political machinery and culture, physical geography and spiritual spatiality. And the prevailing conviction of Jewish people at this time, the time of Jesus, was that this transformation couldn't occur without some intervention of God into history. And the Messiah, for many, was just this intervention, this disruption, this initiation and fulfillment of that Emmanuel promise, that dream. Christmas, the word Christmas, comes from an old English juxtaposition of Christ and Mass. So Christmas is a special Mass devoted to Christ. And the word Christ comes from the Greek Christos, which means anointed, the exact analog to the Hebrew Meshiach, Messiah, which also means anointed, as all the leaders of Israel were down through their history. David, for example, was a Meshiach, the anointed, a Messiah. So the anticipation of Christmas, the dreaming of it, is the expectation of the Christ, the Messiah, the leader of Israel, the one who would lead the people like Moses out from under subjugation, restore the sovereignty of the nation, and actualize the dream. That sounds like a liberation movement. It sounds a bit like the anti-colonial and anti-imperialist struggles of the last century continuing into the present. 
Rome is the dominating, occupying force, and the hope of the Jewish people is to be free. And on the surface, that's what it is. The dream is a dream of liberation that Christ, of course, invokes when he inaugurates his ministry, saying, I have come to liberate the oppressed and set the captive free. And that's no mere metaphor. It's not a metaphor of just spiritual states. He's speaking to a very real material political context. And he's speaking over and against the Roman dream of Pax Romana, of world domination. Against this project flowers a dream of national liberation. And in this telling of the story, Rome is bad and Israelite nationalism is good. But I want to complicate that easy distinction. Israel's dream holds its own peculiar and violent history. Remember that the land which they believed to be their own was not always theirs. Remember that in the book of Joshua, they arrive in the Canaanite territories as ruthless invaders, setting everything to the ban, killing everything that breathes, in fact, destroying everything except the trees. It's the one thing God says, don't touch the trees. So on a canonical reading of scripture, of the history that was available to the dreamers of the Second Temple period, this dream is a desire to reproduce conquest to extend the dispossession of the Canaanites, to reify Israelite rule over the indigenous populations. Those people had not actually been erased. The conquerors led by Joshua didn't complete the genocide. And this fact haunts them throughout a history of syncretistic idolatry and backsliding and forbidden intermarriage. But in the dream, these threats fall away. The nation is reconstituted, and the land is repossessed as distinctly Israelite. Now, before I move on, I want to make clear that not everybody in the first century, not every inheritor of the Israelite traditions, believed this way. But that was the general thrust. And I also mention that on a canonical reading of Scripture, this is the story. Which is to say, a reading of Scripture that doesn't appeal to history historical context, extra-biblical materials, archaeology, things like that. Because the historical reality is that the conquest didn't happen. The Israelites actually grew organically out of Canaanite peoples, coming to understand themselves as a distinct people purely through religious affiliation. So in a sense, they, they actually do have a significant claim to the land, but not an exclusive one. And that's the point that I want to make. So this dream is not wholly different from Rome's, and neither is ours different from theirs, because we are inheritors of a dream as well, the American one. There are many versions of this dream, but what holds them all together is a belief in the perpetuation of the settler colonial project that is America. Every version of that dream assumes the perdurance of original indigenous dispossession and death. And on this final Sunday of Indigenous Peoples History Month, I want to interrogate that dream too. When we think of indigenous peoples, we typically think of the groups who occupied the Americas before being corralled into reservations and two-thirds being exterminated. 
We should also remember that the Africans who were seized by slave traders were also indigenous peoples, indigenous to their own lands. The story of the relationship between the U.S. and people indigenous to the Americas, to Africa and elsewhere is far too deep and wide to rehearse here, but I want to make one point about it. The native scholar Robert Warrior wrote an article called Canaanites, Cowboys, and Indians, in which he articulates the subject position of indigenous readers of the conquest narratives. And he says, the obvious characters in the story for Native Americans to identify with are the Canaanites, the people who already lived in the promised land. As a member of the Osage Nation of American Indians, who stands in solidarity with other tribal people around the world, I read the Exodus stories with Canaanite eyes. And it is the Canaanite side of the story that has been overlooked by those seeking to articulate theologies of liberation. Especially ignored are those parts of the story that describe Yahweh's command to mercilessly annihilate the indigenous population. What I'm trying to draw our attention to here is an original sin that poisons the dream of Rome, Israel, and America, each of which predicated on dispossession and annihilation, conjoined in warriors' reading as the violence of conquest that animates Israelite and American dreaming. You may already know that the Bible is used to legitimate settler colonialism of, of the indigenous territories and enslavement of indigenous Africans. And so as we get this Christmas season underway, we will fail to understand what it is that we are anticipating and what it is that we're celebrating if we believe that it somehow comports with American fabula and mythos. Just because Christmas has been assimilated into American culture doesn't mean that we have to cede its meaning. Because Christmas is a radical departure from these nightmarish dreams. It's the call to wake up from them, as our lectionary reading is Paul's exhortation to wake from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Echoing Ephesians 5.14, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. There is a better and deeper meaning to God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, a meaning that does not comport with our founding violences, but that calls us to a higher way, a way of being that sees power in the perfectly gentle body of a newborn. Christmas means waking up to the reality of God's presence among us, the Emmanuel promise. It's a rejection of the illusion and mystification of imperialist appropriations, and a return to a promise that is not held within the womb of empire, but the womb of a woman who lived under subjugation. That is where salvation power lives. Warrior writes, with what voice will we, the Canaanites of the world, say, let my people go? Is there a God, a spirit who will hear us and stand with us in the Amazon, Osage County and Wounded Knee? Is there a God, a spirit able to move among the pain and anger of Nablus, Gaza, and Soweto? Perhaps this God, born into the periphery of an occupying empire, who lived under the threat of death 
from the very moment of his birth, who did not ally himself with reactionary nationalisms, who extended relationship beyond ethno-nationalist boundaries to Samaritans and Syrophoenicians and eventually even Gentiles, creating solidarity among all subjugated peoples, perhaps this one, pursued and incarcerated and executed by the state, is able to move among this pain and anger. Perhaps this is a God who speaks with and as and through the Canaanites of the world. But is that God, the God made manifest in the small and vulnerable body of an infant slated for death, is that God our God? Or do we actually worship the colonizer's caricature of him, the white man who gives all the world to white people for nothing, for the price of the entire world's suffering and destruction? Because we can't confuse the two. So this Advent season, let's recommit ourselves to the God we know through a Jewish-Palestinian newborn. Not the baby Jesus that's a mascot for capitalism and white supremacy, a convenient veil and moral license for our excesses. But the one born into fugitivity, born against the prevailing powers of this world, the one born into death, the one born for resurrection. That is the depth and beauty and meaning of Christmas. That is the message of God with us. That is the present urgency of an ancient moment. Let's wake up. Let's wake up to the call. Wake up to the dying world. Wake up to the one who made a way out of it. Wake from our dreams of America and Israel and Rome and rise into the reality of the new world that we can make through struggle. Shake off the lethargy, the resignation to things as they are, the acquiescence to the divine right of the colonizer. Wipe the sleep from your eyes and wake up to the world, to the work of the God who casts their lot in with the Canaanites of the world. Let's take up our crosses too and follow the way. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you were fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options both in person and online Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We are live in the sanctuary as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.